Greetings. Welcome back to the Content Blues Podcast. I'm Andrew, commenting on what passes under my nose like a pig looking for truffles. Hopefully I find something good. Uh, Today I'm going to talk about Princess Di. Not a topic I often talk about, but uh, she's very much in the public eye in the moment, even though she's dead and has been dead. And uh, yeah, I think that's kind of the point. I'm also going to uh, comment on some other old things from the 80s. In fact, that's pretty much where my uh, focus is for this evening in terms of uh, commentary, review, and uh, music exploration. It's kind of the vibe where I'm at right now. So uh, in full respect of the irony with which 20-year-old me would hear these words, let's take a deep dive back into the 80s. I don't know if I've mentioned this with any great detail, uh, certainly not on the podcast, perhaps on the Content Blues website, Um, but I'm not big into 80s nostalgia, and the reason I'm not into 80s nostalgia is that I remember the 80s as they were. And they're, you know, they were an okay time, you know, not bad. Uh, there there are other eras that were definitely worse. I, I think the, uh, <clears throat> the 80s probably improved on the 70s. I'll give them that. But uh, I, don't, I don't look back on them with fondness and nostalgia, um, especially because nostalgia is always a limiting uh, exercise emotionally and spiritually. And I think that's become even more so now that nostalgia is so fully commodified. Um, I mean, it's perfectly natural for people once they reach a certain age. And, uh, my generation, my cohort has definitely hit that age to look back at childhood and youth with rose colored glasses. It's all perfectly normal, but the extent to which it has become, the nexus of popular culture is always something that, that bothers me. It, uh, it suggests a deep lack of originality in the, uh, the cultural commissars of our era, or the creatives of our era, to, to use a less pejorative term. So you, you start thinking like we're, we're past the Roman silver age and there are no new ideas, just repetition of old ideas over and over and over again until the Visigoths arrive is the uh, the vibe and the lamentation that uh, that I, I sometimes speak to. Um, but having said all that, you know, in in recent years, I too have become a victim of nostalgia, or at least re-examination, and I've started to kind of appreciate what was going on in my youth and childhood in a way that I didn't at the time. So I'm able to uh, look at things in a in kind of a new way, which is good, which to me is the opposite of nostalgia. To re-examine things is the opposite of nostalgia. It actually, it actually uh, underlines growth rather than retreat, which is what nostalgia tends to be. It tends to be a retreat. And uh, so with that in mind... I'm going to talk about uh, Princess Di, Indiana Jones, and New Order. Uh, 
three things of the 80s that uh, some of which are remembered well, some of which are barely remembered, and some of which are uh, remembered because they can't ever be forgotten. But uh, first I want to talk about Princess Di because uh, I watched Diana the Musical on Netflix. My wife and I watched this. And uh, we, we watched it uh, according to the promise that it was horrible. And it lived up to that expectation. It was horrible. Like, if you can imagine the fourth season of The Crown dumbed down to about a middle schooler's understanding, that's Diana the Musical. The book and songs, you know, the most essential part of a musical were uniformly bland, uninspired, and uh, just incredibly basic. No, no nuance or, or depth to them. Uh, just like tired, like the the kind of thing you'd get in a third grader's book report based on one of those Meet Princess Die books that they have in school libraries. Like, that's the level that Diana the Musical was at. Um, the actors were all fine. Uh, they were obviously pros. I mean, when, once you get to the Broadway level, everyone's a pro. Everyone knows what they're doing. They are the 1% of the 1% who are trained actors and uh, have a good concept of, of what is necessary to give good characterization based on the script that they're given and, and to do so in, in a quick frame of mind. Unless, of course, you know, unless, of course, it's some outside celebrity like putting Mickey Dolenz in Aida, everyone who's on Broadway knows what they're doing and belongs there. So that was certainly true of the actors in Diana the Musical. No, no fault at them or any of their characterizations. They, they, they did their best to spin straw into bronze and didn't quite pull it off, but it's, it's it's not their fault. It's not their fault. The songs are dumb. The the you you really start to feel it when you get to the song that's about the press hounding Diana, and they have this like snap, flash, click refrain, and they're all dressed like uh, Clark Kent. It's just really dumb and thoughtless and brainless. And uh, anything about the human character of her or the Queen or Prince Charles or anybody else, Camilla Parker Bowles, all of whom are real people and everyone except Diana are still alive. You know, it's not like doing Mozart. Like these are real people who exist and can observe their characterizations on screen. <laughs> Not that I think Prince Charles is doing that. He probably has better things to do and knows better than to watch a a Broadway version of himself. At least I hope so. But you know, the there's there's a there's a falsehood to all of this, and it's not a very hardworking falsehood. It's and honestly, I think that's the point. I think what we see in Diana the Musical, is the final commodification of the person of Princess Diana. It's been, what, 25 years since her death? Yeah, it'll be 25 years next year. 
be the 25th anniversary of her death. So she's been dead for a quarter century. She has been dead longer than she was ever relevant in the public eye. She <laughs> she has crossed the, the Sid Vicious threshold. And she is now completely iconographed. Who she was is so far gone and slowly slipping away from living memory. So all we have is the image. So the only part of Diana the musical that is truthful is the way that it shows her becoming an image. The musical opens and closes with her surrounded by stage lights and specially set stage light that flash and flash and flash. And it is a beginning and it is a becoming from person to icon, from real to unreal. And the musical really doesn't have, or whoever wrote the book and the songs don't have the... Uh, the intellectual depth of the stage manager or the, uh, what do you call it? The stage director, the, uh, there's a term for this that I don't know because it's been forever since I learned theater terms. Uh, my wife would know. But commodification. Diana is now commodity. Diana is now icon, which is marvelous to consider when you realize that her the the only part of her that was interesting was the struggle of the real person against the image that captured her you know she was the fairy tale princess but the unreality underneath that was the interesting story that everyone seized upon and now that story of her resisting her story is now itself you know, a meme. Diana, the unhappy princess. Diana, the unhappy mother. Diana, who went to talk to the AIDS patients. Diana, who was... What? Um, who was what, really? When you get right down to it. Who was she? She was someone famous because she was famous. She was a... Uh, <laughs> She was basically a Kardashian, right? I mean, she's a well-behaved Kardashian because the British royal family, they're Kardashians. They're kind of a, an ancient form of Kardashians. The, uh, the monarchy in England hasn't had a, a really political role for um, 300 years and change. You know, 1688 was the moment at which parliamentary supremacy took over in the Glorious Revolution, and the monarchy basically became a vestige. Um, so that was accomplished in the 17th century, and, you know, they just kind of slowly working all this out today. Uh, Parliament rules Britain, not the Queen. Everybody knows this. And she's a figurehead. Everybody knows this. So really, they're just Kardashians. And they're either well-behaved Kardashians or they're badly behaved Kardashians. And Diana was just sucked into that. Because really, what were her accomplishments? What did she do? All the things she did 
were things that she did as a person who had a camera shoved in her face. People make a big deal that she went and talked to AIDS patients in the 80s and touched AIDS patients. And this was a big deal, not because it was a big deal in itself to do it. It was a big deal because somebody famous did it. You know, those patients were already receiving care in hospitals. There were already nurses and doctors who were talking to them and interacting with them daily and treating them like humans and touching them. That was already happening. But Diana was famous. The whole thing is a media meme. She is a media meme. So she takes the camera that's pointed in her face and she points it at things that she cares about as a human being, landmines and such. And so all her accomplishments are media accomplishments, raising awareness. That's what Diana is. That's what really she became, and that's what she remains. A media reality, a media creation. That's all she is. That's what she lived as. It's what she died as. Um... And that's what she remains. And we will continue to see iconographies of her for the foreseeable future. There's a, a new movie called Spencer that's either out or coming out that has, uh, what's her name? The girl from Twilight, Kristen Stewart, in the title role. And she looks enough like Diana to, to have that vibe. And everyone's saying how wonderful it is and what a crazy good role it is. And I'm sure it's going to have like, you know, 89% on Rotten Tomatoes and 53% audience ratings or not. Who cares? I'm sure it'll be much smarter than Diana the Musical. I'm sure it'll be better written because it can't possibly be any worse written. But that'll be like the smart set version of Diana the Musical. Like, Diana the Musical is for, like, you know, the basic horde Diana fans who know it's kind of dumb, but will watch it anyway because Diana, because she continues, uh, like Star Wars, she continues. It's a fandom that exists and will continue to exist. It's a fandom. So, we're gonna have, uh versions of her story and then maybe someone will come along and make a comedic version of her story and then someone will come along and you know after this diana the musical thing flops on broadway maybe they'll they'll come up with a good version of it that they'll do on the west end in london and it'll be a rollicking success maybe it'll be based on the kristen stewart movie spencer and then, you know, everyone can can fall all over themselves writing articles about, finally, we have a musical for Diana that Diana merits. And and the, the icon machine will just keep going. And uh, the paucity of it and the paucity of the meaning of it will not be noticed because it's not supposed to be noticed. Uh, any more than it's supposed to be noticed when dealing with, like, Star Wars and, uh, you know, Rambo movies, which uh, Stallone still made a final one, like, a few years ago. I don't know if it was any good or not, but, you know, it has a fandom, so we keep making it. And uh, the fact that 
you know, in this case, it was about a real person is kind of irrelevant because she was a real person, yes, who lived an incredibly false life, and that was the story about her. And so the falsehood of her life is the real story that has itself become a simulacrum of the actual story that she lived. Whatever. She was a pretty girl in a dress. And that's really all that we care about. All right, moving on from one fandom to another, let's talk about Indiana Jones. Uh, I've written on the Content Blues website a little bit in uh, a lot of detail, actually, about uh, some of my encounters with the Indiana Jones movies that I grew up with as a kid and watched a lot as a kid. Um, and... Uh, Having recently gone through a rewatch of the entire trilogy with my children, I, I do admit that those original three movies, like, they hold up. Like, they work wonderfully as uh, just classic adventure films. Whatever the vibe that uh, Lucas and Spielberg were mining when they first came up with the idea for the character and the era that they set it in, they hit it, man. It works. You, you can't... You can't fault the execution of those films. Uh, I think last month I blogged about uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, and I had some things to say about it. And uh, I'm going to go back today to talking about Last Crusade, because that's still my favorite. And I did a rewatch of it recently, and it's still my favorite. I love it. I think it's better than Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is almost everybody's favorite. Um, I'm going to be contrarian. As I, as I admitted in the Temple of Doom blog post, uh, I, I do like it. And the reason that I like it, and I think it's better than Raiders, is because it introduces a new element into the trilogy, which is that it actually takes some time to look at the conflicts in the character of our lead protagonist, our lead hero, this Indiana Jones person. It kind of examines who he is and why he is the way he is through an interaction which is rolled into the adventure with his father and the uh, revelation that he is, in fact, a junior, which, which comes along uh, at the end, although it's not really a surprise at the end, that, like, that's his name. Henry Jones Jr. is his name. And because uh, his, his uh, father... It was played by Sean Connery in one of the best, one of the best Sean Connery roles ever. Um, Sean Connery had a good run at the end of the 80s and into the 90s. But uh, that interaction between those two is so much fun. They're so great together, Harrison Ford and Indiana Jones. And I've, I'm on record as not being the world's biggest fan of Harrison Ford. Uh, I think he's a lot more limited then he wants to admit that he is. He's, uh, I think I've used this phrase before, he's low-rent Clint Eastwood. Like, if if you wanted a less talented Clint Eastwood, you go with, with Harrison Ford. Um, Clint Eastwood kind of knows where his area is and where he belongs is, and uh, Harrison Ford seems to think he can play um, lawyers with mental illness and be interested, or some lunatic 
sweating in the coast of South America and people will care. And I, I, I don't know how to communicate how wrong he is. Uh, I think I tried to watch the Mosquito Coast once and it was really boring. But uh, that's, that's really neither here nor there. I, I don't want to dump on Harrison Ford again. I've done that before. I want to praise him in this particular series because in this particular series, as Indiana Jones, he's great. This is the best character he's ever created. This is kind of a piece of his soul. You can kind of tell. Like, there's not a whole lot to Han Solo, but there's there's layers to Indiana Jones, and they get explored in uh, Last Crusade, which is why I like this one the best. They explore him as a character. There's a wonderful prologue, which talks about why he, some of the impulses that he has and why he's an archaeologist and gets into that relationship with his father. And, uh, you know, we, we are all the sons of our fathers. But, so that's an easy writing thing to do, but they do it well. They explore the conflict between father and son in a way that's grown up and mature they don't tie a little bow on it and resolve it at the end. There's no emotional catharsis. They go on as they have. You know, they've, they've shared this adventure together, and that does mean something. But it's, it's not neatly tied up, which I like. Uh, it's, it's done subtly. And whenever Harrison Ford and uh, Sean Connery are on screen together, the movie is just magic. And... It's kind of it kind of makes you wish they had done more movies together. It, it really they're they're that good as a combination. You wouldn't think it. You'd just be like, oh cool, this seems like fun, but they're such fun together. And exploring this relationship that they have, they do it in a way that feels very real. And so I like that. That's what makes it better. Raiders doesn't really have anything like that. There's not a whole lot of emotional depth to Raiders. Uh there's an uh there's a romantic entanglement that's suggestive, but it's resolved pretty fast. Like, there's not, uh, they don't do a whole lot with it. Like, people who like the Indiana Jones movies, everybody likes Marion Crane because she's a fun character, she's spunky, she thinks on her feet, she's clever, she's aware of herself, she's, uh, she's a good character. She's everyone's favorite Indiana Jones love interest because she actually gets to be a character. Um, I don't want to talk about Willie Scott because I talked about Willie Scott a lot on the Indiana Jones blog post or Temple of Doom blog post. Um, I defended her, but I don't want to get into that now. Um, I want to talk about the, the girl in Last Crusade. It's <laughs> kind of still my favorite because she's the best looking one. And I saw this when I was 13. So you figure it out. Alison Duty is an Irish model. Um... She's had something of a film career in Ireland, but never took off in America. Uh, she's fine in this. She's not given a whole lot to do. Uh, Elsa Schneider is kind of unique among the Indiana Jones girls in that uh, she's the only one who is uh, made out to be an actual full-on antagonist. Uh, she's the only one that dies which causes the movie to have a strange and 
bittersweet ending because her death results in the loss of the thing that they had finally found, the Holy Grail, which is, you know, of a piece with the Indiana Jones mythos, you know. Indiana Jones is never actually allowed to take control of the thing that he founds, finds, rather. Uh, he always kind of loses it. In Raiders, he loses it to the U.S. government, and the, the Lost Ark just becomes buried in this other pile of stuff, which is Area 51, which is now canonically Area 51. But which is exactly where the kind of place that the Ark of the Covenant has been for centuries, in a government warehouse. That's where Indiana Jones found it, in a government warehouse belonging to the Egyptian pharaohs. And that's exactly where it ends up, in the you know, warehouse of the new empire. And, you know, the Shankara stones, which don't actually exist, are returned to the village that they belong to in Temple of Doom. And we, the Holy Grail found, vanishes back into the earth at the end of uh, Last Crusade, which is kind of appropriate. It's, it's a vibe of Grail legends going all the way back to Parzival. You don't actually get to take the grail with you because, you know, human beings always screw up and they're not worthy of it. That's that's another thing that is a constant theme in Indiana Jones movies is that humans are not worthy of this sacred thing. This sacred thing is sacred and comes from God or the gods. And humans are not fit to behold it because they will abuse it. They will use it to their own ends. And God or the gods will not permit that and destroys those who attempts to use divinity for their own purposes. Indiana Jones movies have a wonderful sense of the sacred. Uh, Spielberg's, Spielberg's, whatever Spielberg's religious morality is, shows through in these movies because in a very Old Testament Jewish way, you're not fit to touch the ark. You're not fit to open it up. It's sacred. It is the holy of holies, and you don't belong there. That's a persistent theme in the Old Testament, and uh, I think it shines through. It's, it's a bit of a deus ex machina in Raiders. Uh, it's not given a whole lot better thrift in Temple of Doom, but in Last Crusade... Last Crusade is a wonderfully religious film, which is part of that whole father-son conflict that I was talking about earlier. Because Henry Jones Sr. is a sincerely religious man who wants to see the Holy Grail just so he can put his eyes upon this treasure of God's. He doesn't want to use it. He doesn't want to exploit it. He doesn't want eternal life. He wants the illumination of having beheld this sacred thing of God's. That is his impulse. That's why he studied the grail. That's why he longs for the grail. He longs for the grail in a sacred way like Sir Galahad longed for the grail. And uh, part of the conflict of the story and part of the resolution of the conflict between father and son is Indiana Jones having to put himself into that mindset so that he too can be worthy of the grail. It's, it's literally a leap of faith. And so in that respect, it's the most religious 
of the films. Um, and I think that's wonderful. Is Indiana Jones actually has to undergo a religious experience in order to succeed in his goals, which is really to save his dad and keep his dad out of trouble. He doesn't really care about the grail itself, which is kind of what makes him worthy of it. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want to use it. He's only interested in something which is good, an act of love. And uh, so there's a process by which he has to be refuse the call and then go forth in the name of the call in order to do something noble and keep his father out of trouble. So uh, for that reason, I think uh, Last Crusade uh, occupies a certain place in my heart that the others don't because it, it, it has a fullness of character it has a sense of depth. There's a there's wonderful arcs within it. And it has that bittersweet ending because of what happens to the love interest, Elsa Schneider. She dies. Spoilers. She dies, which causes the film to have a bittersweet ending, which is a bit jarring. Jarring when first I watched it as a teenager. I didn't want to see the pretty blonde go down into the depths, but she did and jarring that they lost the grail, and they ride off into the sunset, having sort of accomplished their goals, having sort of saved the day, but there's a shrinking away from what was beautiful and sublime. And no matter how strongly the final score plays at the end, that bittersweetness remains kind of kind of poisoning the victory which is a very human thing very fitting with grail legend and uh kind of kind of pushes this film above a little bit even though it's it's jarring and it almost doesn't quite work but uh upon sober reflection one one finds the truth in it and it might be an accidental truth it might not be something that spielberg intended but I, I tend to give him the benefit of the doubt as he, you know, he's he's not the world's greatest director, but he is a director who knows what he's doing and is capable of making art. So, yeah, his, his instincts are to be taken seriously. So, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, it's my favorite. It's the deepest one. It's the most profound one. And uh, I will uh, I will die on this hill. Now we're going to switch into the area, which I have long resisted, and that is 80s music. Um, I think that was the biggest stumbling block for me as a kid, is that I didn't get the music of my childhood. I found it uh, weird and fake and uh, artificial. And uh, not, nothing about it connected to me in any way. I didn't, I didn't start liking music until the 90s. Uh, because the 90s were, were very weird. And very weird and very devoted to uh, you know, a particularly simple kind of punkish rock and roll that I uh, could relate to in some way. Whereas nothing really going on in the 80s could I relate to in any way. 
But as, uh, as time has gone on, I've kind of uh, softened that approach. I still don't like hair metal and never will because it's fake. But I, uh, I do sort of come around a little bit on some of the synthier sounds of that era. I've mentioned that uh, I, I, can, I can kind of vibe on like Vaporwave and that kind of feel like there's some creative ideas going on in the synth pop of the 80s that I, I couldn't hear at the time but now make a, a certain kind of sense to me um you know when 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 punk went under because there was no place for it to go the only thing that makes sense is a totally different kind of sound in in that sense uh punk rock of the late 70s was a kind of clearing house, a kind of controlled detonation for new musical sounds. And that was the, the synth, pop, new wave, new romantic music of the 80s, which is still extremely dorky. Don't get me wrong. It's still, uh, you know, missing something that, that, that I could give me pure devotion to it, but I can sort of appreciate it on a, on, a, on a curatorial sense as, oh, I see what they're doing here. This is interesting. And it was, of course, uh, the band Joy Division that helped me kind of make my peace with the music of the 80s because Joy Division is kind of the in-between punk and before New Wave because it's so goth and so low and so particular, like it's a post-punk band, and post-punk is like the first step towards the, the synth music of the 80s. And in a literal sense, in this case, because when Ian Curtis died in 1980, uh, the remainder of the band became New Order, which is uh, still in operation today? I don't, I think, maybe? I don't know. I don't actually care. But, uh, you know, understanding, uh, getting into Joy Division made me kind of, like, appreciate that particular kind of a sound, that post-punk sound. And uh, having listened to some, you know, some, some versions of Blue Monday on YouTube and some other New Order songs, I decided, hey, let's do an exploration. So I did what I always do, which is pick out the band's first album which is, you know, for me, this is the starting point. This is what they were creating. It doesn't matter if it's really good or not. This is like the snapshot of the band at its inception. So what do you do when your lead singer dies and you want to start a new band without him and you're just three guys trying to recreate something and take it in a different direction? And that's New Order's first album, Movement, which also has really good cover art. Uh, just... Just wonderfully uh, minimalist, and uh, and and uh, I, I like the I like the font a lot. The font looks great. Um, but I mean, it's probably not the best album that was ever released. Not even by uh, New Order, but you know, it's definitely people have come to appreciate it in recent years. And I think it has a certain vibe to it. And in the past week or so that I've been listening to it, I've had it in my car on the six CD changer with a bunch of other stuff that's also from that era, like uh, The Jam and Husker Du and Public Image Limited 
and uh, one other thing. But it's like a bunch of stuff from that era, and it fits in really nicely. Like, it's, uh, it's, it's not as good as Joy Division. It's not as good as the first Joy Division album. I don't know if it's even as good as Closer, but it's got something. It's, it's Abandoned Transition, which is always kind of interesting to listen to. As creative artists making a move from one thing to another thing. Um, the results may not always be, like, satisfying, but it's intellectually interesting. And that's what I find uh, is going on here. I don't know how much New Order I'm going to listen to, um, but I think this... This new order is better than the other The New Order, <laughs> which was what Ron Ashton's band in the wake of the Stooges that he did with uh, uh, Dennis Thompson of the MC5 and Jimmy Recca, which has like one good song on it and the rest is kind of like like the most 1975 thing that ever happened. And uh, I don't I don't uh, I don't mean that as a compliment. Uh, the most 1981 thing that ever happened sounds a whole lot better. And that's uh, New Order's first album, Movement. It's, uh, it's a transition from Joy Division to stuff that they did later, but they aren't there yet. So they're kind of just swinging and missing and forming and uh, almost exactly in between what they were and what they would become. And uh, I like that because, you know, it shows that whatever we're doing, whatever we're creating, it always is a shift from one thing to something else. Uh, all art exists in a continuum. Um, you know, every one of uh, Picasso's blue period pieces was a shift on the journey of his art in that era. And I'm saying that, and I couldn't tell you one blue period piece from the other. Were they all blue? Does that even mean anything? But I think my point stands. So if synth or vaporwave or anything else of that particular style of music interests you, if you like Joy Division, um, this is a good one to give a try to. It's not quite like as beepy as, as Blue Monday or later New Order stuff. It's, uh, it still sounds like them. So give it a go. All right, that's all I have planned for this particular episode. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. And uh, thank you for coming by and listening to the Content Blues Podcast. I'm Andrew. Check out the rest of the noise at contentblues.com. We've got a new unnamed journal out. And a new... Uh... uh all kinds of exciting things going on. Check us on out. Have a wonderful day. <laughs>